My name's Joe, and I like to talk about world events off the beaten track. Covid, Trump and Brexit will appear only where strictly necessary, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing about some things that most news organisations skip over. I'm offering this in the 5WH format, asking the questions who, what, where, when, why and how. The order of these questions may vary from time to time, but it's my hope that asking these questions, and hopefully answering them, will give you the bottom line up front and give you some extra context should you choose to dig further into any of the things I cover. I'm also hoping they'll act as a bit of a handrail and stop me vanishing down too many tangential rabbit holes. For my repeat listeners, I would like to apologise for my absence. I've had the good fortune to start a new job, and that coincided with some other chaos and personal circumstances, which have meant I've had to place the beloved hobby on the back burner for a little while. It's been a busy few months in the world, and I've yet to have the opportunity to celebrate the fact that two of my least favourite elements of the news appear to be on the back foot. And, to top it off, one day I hope to do a look back on the Ku Klux coup on January the 6th. Today we'll be looking at the killing of the Italian ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo, which caught my eye as, while DRC is routinely a pretty rough place, it's not every day that diplomats get blown away. Yet it's also not the first time a diplomat has been killed in relation to United Nations programme in the country. The UN Secretary-General's plane was shot down in northern Rhodesia en route to negotiating a ceasefire in the DRC in 1961, with all on board killed. Anyway, we should probably get back to the present day. Okay then, we're going to start with the WHO, and we're going to start the WHO with the Italian ambassador. The person at the centre of this sad story is Luca Atanasio, the Italian ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo as well as his Italian bodyguard, Vittorio Idivacci, and the Congolese driver, uh, Mufasa Milambo. All of these men died during the events I'm about to discuss, and before we go any further, I'd just like to encourage a moment's reflection and sympathy for their families. Atanasio had served the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation since 2003, serving his first Africa-related role in 2004. This was then followed by a few international postings in Europe and the MENA region, uh, before his deployment to Nigeria as first councillor in Abuja in 2015. His first deployment to Congo was to Kinshasa in 2017 as head of mission. He has remained there ever since and was promoted to ambassador in October 2019. Frankly, as an English speaker, it's hard to identify any particularly interesting or abnormal trends in his activities in the country. A search on google.it or goreveno.it, the Italian government website, excuse pronunciation, uh, returns a flurry of results for the past week or so, as you'd probably expect, given the events, um, and then past the first couple of pages, it produces the occasional impregnable spreadsheet from the mid-20-teens or the early 2000s, and not really much in the way of news. What we can say from what has been released since his funeral is that there appears to have been the sort of normal diplomatic routine exercises of engaging with international programs, particularly in Congo with aid organisations, the United Nations and so forth, um, but nothing particularly stand out as the core Italian mission there. We then come on to the ambassador's bodyguard, Vittorio Ivacci. Uh, he was an officer in the Italian Carabinieri. I'm not really sure what the UK or US equivalent of this organisation would be, but the Carabinieri are a sort of federally organised quasi-military organisation uh, focused on law enforcement. Given the nature of his role and the fact he was in the Congo, uh, he was a member of a specialist unit known as the 8th Regiment, which as far as I can tell is the organisation which provides close protection specialists for the Italian state. Being, sadly again, somewhat hampered by my absence of Italian language skills, 
Uh, all I can really tell is that this was not his first overseas task. It was his job. For, you know, he'd done several of these before around the world. Um, and what we can see really is a sad rendition of the uh, cop show trope come to life. Uh, he was due to return to Italy in March and had his wedding scheduled for this summer. The other man who unfortunately died was a local Congolese man employed by the World Food Programme as a driver. Uh, local reporting suggests his name is Mustafa Malambo. Uh, unfortunately, though, given the lack of social media penetration into uh, DRC, I've not really been able to find out much about him. Also in the WHO, we're going to have to name-check a couple of organisations. We're going to start with the World Food Programme, or otherwise known as the WFP. This is the organisation with whom our unlucky adventurers were travelling at the time of the ambush. The World Food Programme is part of the United Nations, focused, somewhat understandably given its name, on the provision of food to struggling people around the world. Typically, the WFP is found augmenting and filling the gaps in the food supply chain in those parts of the world bathed in conflict or at the front lines of the climate catastrophe. It's unsurprising but sad, given the DRC's history, that the World Food Programme has a significant presence in the country, where it is estimated that domestic food production is able to provide less than 30% of what the nation requires to fully nourish its population. We also need to mention the Congolese army, although when we get to uh, discussing the timeline of events later you'll see that their role is murky if ever actually relevant. As you can probably imagine given the country's troubles, the Congolese army gets around a bit and are operationally deployed widely throughout the country. It's unclear whether they had a direct role in the attack on the Italian ambassador, but they have a troubled history including allegations of widespread sexual violence and other criminality against their own population. As is common in a lot of African states which had civil wars following decolonialization, the units of the Congolese army are made of subunits intentionally intermingled from the formerly opposed ethnic militias and war bands. This is part of an effort to prevent any one political or ethnic group gaining de facto control of a, an entirely functional combat formation. The process is, however, incomplete, having been started in the sort of mid-90s, and it appears to have almost negligible impact on actually improving the discipline or dissuading the troops from routine and casual violence against the populations they're supposed to serve. They've received training from the ex-colonial power Belgium, as well as the US and the Chinese People's Liberation Army. This insane melting pot of doctrinal and tactical confusion appears to have had absolutely no success in improving the quality of the troops in question, nor diminishing their tendency to abuse their population. We also get to take a glance at another quasi-military organisation operating in this part of Congo, that is, the Congolese uh, Park Rangers. The reason this is important is that despite the rumoured proximity of army personnel to the ambush of the Italian ambassador, the attempted rescue was conducted by a patrol of park rangers in the area. As that sentence may suggest, park rangers are in Congo are a little more than the National Trust or the Forestry Commission. Due to the unique biodiversity of eastern Congo, combined with the exceptionally violent human environment, the park rangers are close to what most westerners would consider a hybrid of light infantry and bushcraft specialists, tasked with denying the myriad armed groups it, the ability to illicitly exploit the region's resources. Trafficking of rare species, as well as the more mundane prospect of illegal fishing or charcoal production, are major sources of revenue which enable the violence. Militia groups therefore view these ranges as a sufficient threat that they directly target them, with at least six rangers having been unfortunately killed in the past month alone. So, bearing in mind I've said the M-word so many times this podcast already, it is about time we got round to addressing the militias. Experts estimate that 130, that is 130, 
distinct and separate armed groups are waging their own Byzantine-entangled guerrilla battle royale in the North Kivu region. Frankly, it makes player-unknown battlegrounds look like a walk in the park. They vary in size from the personal armies of various warlords and regional leaders fighting directly over the resources to a sort of town or village level collective whose interests lie more in the direction of sort of self-defense rather than any sort of offensive action or criminal activity, although there is a massive grey zone where this all overlaps. Honestly, given the limited scope of this podcast, I would typically try and narrow this down a bit and talk about the groups we think did it. However, although media reports immediately following the attack name-checked a couple of these groups, uh, formal statements by the Italian government since have suggested that they have no evidence of which group currently conducted the attack and investigations are ongoing, Frankly, if they're not willing to list uh, a group of key suspects, I'm not going to try and name-drop it either. And we've got 130-odd groups to pick from. The odds of me being correct are pretty slim. It is worth noting, though, that some aspersions have also been cast against the Congolese army, which has a, you know, a record of desertion and criminality. Just, you know, as a side business. So, having started to paint a pretty chaotic picture, I think it's time we actually address the what. I'm speaking at a time approximately a week after the event. Exactly what happens remains somewhat blurred, so I'm going to try and give you the facts that we can be certain of, and there are inevitably going to be gaps, contradictions, and confusions. And it's also going to be pretty brief. Broadly speaking, Ambassador Atanzio wanted to visit a World Food Programme site approximately two hours north of Goma. So he flew from Kinshasa, the capital, to Goma, and got in a World Food Programme convoy, three Softison 4x4s, and six or seven other personnel. Started driving down the N2 road, north. Approximately 15 kilometres, or 50 minutes, which gives you an indication of how bad these roads are, uh, out of town, seven men, six with rifles, one with a machete, blocked the road, forced the convoy to stop. This is where the details begin to get confused. What appears to have happened is that the convoy occupants were forced to disembark from their vehicles, then, before the attackers could move their victims out of the area, a patrol of Congolese park rangers opened fire. At some point in the ensuing gun ba- battle, Vittorio and Mufasa were killed instantly, with uh, Ambassador Atanzio hit twice in the abdomen. It is unclear who hit all of these individuals. The attackers were then killed or driven off, uh, before an attempt was made to extricate the World Food Programme personnel, Ambassador Atanzio and the park rangers from the site. The ambassador unfortunately died of his wounds during the effort to evacuate him back to Goma, again a 50-minute drive away on pretty dodgy roads. It's worth noting that this narrative, uh, which sort of came out into the public on around about the 25th of February, differs substantially from the execution narrative which had circulated early in the week and may well have varied again by the time some of you guys get to listen to this. To be fair though, This changing story is one of the reasons why I like to offer this podcast, as many stories dip quickly in and out of the news as they happen, um, as illustrated by the fact that if you've heard anything to date, you've probably heard that the victims were dragged out of the vehicles and shot, sort of out of hand before the park rangers attempted to rescue them, or some similar narrative. And I think this evolution of the story really demonstrates why it's important to watch some of these events as they unfold and take a, a longer view of things. And I think it's something that our sort of you know, minute-by-minute news cycle really does does us a disservice with. Anyway, I'm going to stop.
blathering on on random tangents because that's what this layout is supposed to prevent. And we're going to jump in with the where. So I've named quite a few places so far. I'm now going to try and stitch this all together like a set of dubious Russian nesting dolls and put that in context so you sort of develop a bit of an image of what's going on. So we're going to start at the top. This occurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is a absolutely vast former Belgian colony about halfway down West Africa, with the equator neatly slicing the top third of the country. Working clockwise from the northern end of DRC's Atlantic coastline, it is surrounded by the confusingly named Republic of Congo, not to be confused, the Central African Republic, South Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, Zambia, and Angola. The DRC's position in the very heart of Africa and its position on the border of so many other countries is the reason why it factors into the strategic considerations not only of its neighbours, but also the superpowers. And that's before we consider its vast wealth of natural resources and the convenient lack of meaningful governance. The vast Congo River, the state's namesake, meanders up the border with the other Congolese Republic before veering westward into the DRC's hinterland, and its banks... Close to, the, uh, close to the sea, are home to the nation's capital city of Kinshasa. The DRC has an estimated population of around 106 million people, which puts it in the same ballpark as Germany, yet in terms of landmass it covers an area greater than Spain, France, Germany, Sweden and Norway combined. The majority of this land is covered in dense and verdant jungle, which provide the natural resources for a significant portion of its population, but is also the driving factor uh, behind many of the difficulties in exerting governance over the state. Narrowing our focus slightly, we now get to have a look at northern Kivu, uh, which is a province to the far east of the DRC and encapsulates the Virunga National Park, butts up against the borders of Uganda and Rwanda. Region gets its name from Lake Kivu, which grazes its southeastern corner, and as of 2018, North Kivu was the site of over half of all violent instances reported in the DRC. And it takes centre stage in the ongoing conflict between Congolese government and the massive, air quotes required, allied democratic forces and numerous other equally disarmingly named horrendously violent militia groups. The driving force behind this violence, in this region as opposed to the rest of the country, appears to be its particularly vast mineral wealth particularly in essential ores and rare metals such as coltan. The city of Goma is North Kivu's major urban area and the regional capital. It is located right up against the border with Rwanda, and as such is a key trading point across which much of North Kivu's mineral resources are extracted, uh, before getting on further transport down to the closest major seaport in Mombasa, Kenya. As the narrative I gave earlier suggested, Goma is also the main access point for other forms of travel, as the site of the region's only substantial airfield. I say substantial because I don't doubt an area as large as Kivu has some sites capable of dirt landings or accepting helicopters, but I can't see much sign of anywhere you'd want to land if you had a choice. We then get to narrow down into an even smaller settlement. We have the settlement of Rochuru, uh, to the north of Goma, and this was intended to be the final destination of the Italian ambassador's convoy. It's a mountainous territory with a population of around 800,000, uh, and a perpetually high ratio of internally displaced persons. At a high point in 2008, over 250,000 of these 800,000 people were refugees fleeing their homes. It has the misfortune of containing a series of strategically essential settlements and has therefore been the recipient of ongoing violence for decades. 
In short, therefore, it is exactly the sort of place you'd expect to find the World Food Programme and other aid agencies up to their elbows and getting their hands dirty. So having had a look at Goma and Rachuru, this neatly brackets the ambush site. The most specific details I've found to date state that the ambush took place around 15 kilometres from Goma along the N2 highway on the way to Rachuru. Through the magic of Google Maps, I've managed to place this as just southeast of a town called Bahumba. The satellite resolution isn't great, but it appears that the Route N2 is either unmetalled or in a very poor state of repair. The eastern side of the road appears to open out into open grass or scrubland. The western side of the road at this point has dense forest or jungle, which varies at points up to being immediately adjacent to the roadway, and in other places giving way to perhaps another 400 metres of open scrubland before the serious tree cover commences. From a tactical perspective, it's possible to see how terrain like this may give ambushers an absolutely brilliant line of sight to spot their prey coming along the highway, while also granting good cover from which to spring the ambush and then to withdraw while being potentially hunted by the security forces. Bluntly, you can't really fault the ambushers for picking this site. It looks pretty promising. So having covered the key geographical points, we're now going to get on to time and have a look at the when. As this is a pretty singular event, this shouldn't take too long. The convoy was attacked on Monday the 22nd of February. This resulted immediately in the deaths of Ambassador Antanasio, his bodyguard, and the driver. We're also unclear as to the uh, the health or injuries sustained by either the attackers or the park rangers that attempted to rescue them. Mufasa Milambo's funeral was held in the DRC on Tuesday the 23rd, while Luca and Vittorio were repatriated to Italy. On Thursday the 25th, Italy honoured the ambassador and his bodyguard in Rome with a state funeral at the Basilica of St. Mary of the Angels and Martyrs, the traditional site of services honouring major national figures, and, if nothing else, a significant, if unfortunate, honour for these men. Okay, I wasn't kidding when I said that'd be short, and I feel like I'm shortchanging you slightly, so we're going to have a quick uh, look at a bit of a conflict timeline for the DRC, just so you can get a bit more of an understanding of what's going on here. In 1869, the area we now know as Congo was colonised as the Congo Free State, a corporate entity directly under the control of King Leopold II of Belgium. Under King Leo, it was one of the most brutal colonial regimes on the continent during a period which, let's face it, the bar was set pretty damn low. The British consul to the Congo, Richard Casement, reported indiscriminate war, starvation and reduction of birth and rampant tropical diseases, decimating the population, an unholy mix, in other words, of the natural wilderness of the country and the uncontrolled excesses of the colonial population. In 1908, King Leo gave up Congo Free State and it passed into the control of the Belgian government. The system of governance favoured by Belgium was in contrast to that preferred by Britain and France. The Belgians opted to directly impose control in a uniform manner across the state, whereas the British and French had tended to co-opt local leaders and keep the indigenous elites in place. In the longer term, this process of essentially decapitating uh, domestic leadership resulted in a lack of any national or social identity beyond the immediate area in which people lived, and maybe one of the key factors fueling Congo's increasingly chaotic existence post-independence. 1960 to 60, 1965 saw the Congo become independent, and then commence a five-year period known as the Congo Crisis. Without getting into the nitty-gritty of the Game of Thrones-esque conflict, it broadly saw local groups fighting amongst each other for power and influence and against international organisations for the control of the corporate assets. 
unsurprisingly, Cold War superpowers got involved, and I'm sure you can apply some imagination to see how well that went. From 65 to 97, the nation became known as Zaire, starting with a military coup under Dizer Mobutu. Uh, this led to the establishment of a one-party state, and there could be a whole series of podcasts on the Cold War shenanigans which ensued in the intervening period. Sadly, not enough time today. And the fall of the Mobutu regime in the late 90s roughly coincided with a series of other unrest, particularly in Rwanda with the Rwandan genocide. This led to, amongst other things, a, a restoration of conflict and violence in the region, um, and essentially sets the stage for the conflict we have now, as despite numerous attempts at international organisations and domestic groups attempting to broker ceasefires, it's essentially been one intermittent conflict since then. Which brings us, really, round to the why and the how. And this is normally where I get to go on a bit of a ramble on the causes and effects of an event, but ultimately we're so close to this that I'm not really sure we have too much of a perspective yet. Broadly, there are upwards of 120 unique individual armed groups operating in the northern Kiva region. They have been fuelled by a long-term national and regional instability, with the Rwandan genocide leading to a inf significant influx of migrants into the DRC, the increasing demand and dependence of global society on computers and batteries has increased the economic drive for the exploitation of Kiva's resources, and these factors applied together have enabled it to become a definitive microcosm of the resource curse, the phenomenon by which areas with greater natural resources tend to be more violent, more corrupt, and the resources are increasingly less likely to be allocated to the improvement or welfare of the local population. Let's not be coy here, there are many valid reasons for the inhabitants of Kivu to take issue with national government of the DRC, but there is little indication that the ALF or any of the other complexly acronymed militia groups have any significant interest in improving their lot. Can't say they didn't start that way, but the longer a struggle goes on, the more there is need to fuel the fight, and that inevitably needs to a refocus on the war of securing and profiting from the region's trade. Bluntly, as Cicero put it best, the sinews of war are infinite money. On a less general level, looking at the events itself, there have been significant questions bandied around as to why the ambassador was moving through an unstable area with no significant protection, and in soft-skinned vehicles. Honestly, the exact reasoning is not clear yet, but there does appear to be a litany of errors, with some reports suggesting the Italian government did not know the journey was being made. The World Food Programme had routinely made the journey across Route N2 uh, in an undefended manner. They cleared it for use without escorts, provided that, you know, any journeys were done with at least two vehicles, and no one seems to have bothered reassessing the risk with an ambassador in tow, which, in hindsight, a bit of an oversight. Um, and to date, there is also no public information on the motives for the attack on the ambassador's convoy. We don't know if the attackers knew it would be anything more than a routine World Food Programme convoy, we don't know if the killing was intentional, or whether it was a kidnapping gone wrong, we don't know whether there was a specific grievance against the Italians or the World Food Programme or Westerns in general or, or whatever. We don't know if there were any such grievance to trigger it. What we do know, however, generally speaking, is that the kidnap of Westerners, aid workers, tourists, or whatever, or, or kidnap of members of the local population, is common practice for a number of the groups in the territory. So I'm going to have to apply Occam's razor to this one. In the absence of evidence to the contrary, the simple explanation is most likely to be true. It is likely that one of the Northern Kivu insurgent groups decided to fund their operations through a kidnapping. It is likely that they 
opted to target a Western or international organisation as a higher profit enterprise than kidnapping a local. It is likely that they picked a spot on the main highway out of Goma, particularly a highway that they'd noticed that Westerners had begun using without security escorts. They then picked a site that gave them good cover from view, good observation. Generally, you know, they conducted a terrain and ground appreciation and decided that site was good. Then an unescorted convoy of soft-skinned vehicles rolled past them and they sought to kidnap the occupants. At this point, there was an attempted rescue by the park rangers and in the ensuing gunfight, the captives were killed. This might be a bit of an unsatisfactory end and frankly, you know, we will look for narratives and try and find it. But I think in this case, that's probably it. So, sadly... As usual, I appear to have wrapped this up again with no real answer. I do, however, hope it's provided some food for thought, and given some context in which to understand the tragic killing of a diplomat on duty abroad. I'd also like to think I might have ever so slightly lifted the lid on the chaos that swirls around the unfortunate nation of the DRC. I personally would love to find some more time to read into the country and try and understand it, as I think it's horrendously underserved by the brutal and unnuanced picture we have painted for us in the West, fueled by books like The Heart of Darkness and our uh, our media's skin-deep coverage of its incessant forever war. But anyway, on a more optimistic note, I guess, I, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this and I hope you've learned something. If you have enjoyed it or learned something, the two may be exclusive, uh, please hit follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're using. And I'd love it if you join me on Facebook or Instagram. If you just type 5WHpod into the search bar, it'll bring you right in. And I'd really love to hear from you. I'd love to hear any feedback you've got. And I hope, I, I, I hope I'm here to stay now. Anyway, cheers, thanks, and see you soon.